to being sent together. Uh, the, the whole idea of this is that we don't just want to uh, know things about Jesus. We don't just want to experience or have a change or an alteration of our understanding of who God is or a shift in our identity only, but we also, I think all of us, long to actually do and walk in the ways of Jesus, to live lives that just faithfully reflect all the stuff that we sing about. Uh, it, there is this disconnect within us that's probably frustrating often, where it says, oh, we talk and we sing about how Jesus is so loving, so good, but then do we actually live a life? Does it feel like I live a life that follows him, that walks in his ways? Uh, in the very end of, of Jesus' life in the book of Matthew, he stands up after he's already risen from the dead, and he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's all stuff that maybe you memorized like I did when I was a kid out in the class, right? But that whole part is about how Jesus has authority, how he changes the world, how he's sending us all out to be disciples and make disciples. But the last part, I think, is super important, and we walk over all the time. But he says, teach them to obey all that I commanded you. Uh, Teach them to obey the commands, which for me always comes up with this thought of what are those commands that we have to obey. Like if you were going to sign a lease or legally binding document, you'd be like, well, what are these things, right? So there are three commands that Jesus essentially makes over and over again in his life. He says that we should love God, to love God with our hearts, minds, soul, strength, that we should Uh, put all of our uh, selves into loving God. We talk about that often here of enjoying the fruit of the gospel, that we get to enjoy the reality of everything that Jesus is. And just side note, for the last four weeks, that's really what we've been doing and talking about as we've practiced confession with our doubts or lament uh, or Lectio Divina and all of these disciplines and all these conversations. We've just been growing in our love for the gospel and for the reality of who God is. The other command that he says is that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. Uh, We talk about that as participating in God's mission, that we surrender uh, our status and our ideals and all of these things to give ourselves to loving those people around us. And we'll talk about that a lot in the coming weeks. But then the last command, he says, is the actually the only fresh one, and that is to love one another, uh, to live in community and care for and love each other. And so what is a disciple's life? What does it look like to follow the way of Jesus? It's actually these three commands. Uh, It's, you know, sometimes we want to just isolate it and say, oh, I just want to know stuff about God and just have this one-on-one thing with him. Wouldn't that be beautiful? Or I just want to care for the poor and the vulnerable. That's how I follow Jesus. Or I just want to huddle up in community. That's how I follow Jesus. But really what we see through his whole life is it's all three of these interwoven, interconnected. And that is, if I had to boil it down in five minutes, the way and the practice of following Jesus. And so if you say, I want to, I want to believe in him and I want to follow him for the rest of my life, you're, you're sort of signing up for this apprenticeship to uh, learning how to do those three things for the rest of your life. And so as I say that, for the rest of your life, that's pretty serious. The only things that kind of cut close to that are, you know, when you say your wedding vows and you say for the rest of your life. Uh, Or if you're like me and you signed a 30-year mortgage at my age, you're like, well, that's the rest of my life. Uh, 
But uh, as you think about that, the rest of your life learning to, to follow Jesus in these ways, which of these three commands is most exciting to you uh, and which one is the hardest for you to follow? Uh, I want you to huddle up in little groups for just a few minutes and just chat with each other uh, about those, those two things. Which one is the most exciting for you to give the rest of your life to? Which is the hardest for you to fathom? And I'm going to give you some time to chat about that before we continue on. So go, break. All right. Let me ask y'all another question to answer in front of everybody. How many of you said, ah, I can't, I'm so excited to learn about loving one another and other Christians? Who said, any of those? Okay, a two or three, a half hand from Evie, not a confident hand. Allie's is confident. Uh, How many of you said, man, the thing that seems the hardest to actually walk in is to learn how to love these other people in community? Who said that it would be really challenging? Anybody? No, community. Yeah. No, nobody said that either? Well, great. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, And it's from John chapter 13 is our passage today. Uh, 13 verse 34 and 35, and this is in the midst of perhaps uh, the greatest missional community, gospel community gathering that ever happened. Uh, There's people getting their feet washed by Jesus. There's conflict that Jesus has to resolve. There's people who want to be more important than others, and Jesus rebukes them. They have a meal. There's wine. There's bread. There's lamb, probably. Uh, They just have this wonderful feast uh, together, and towards the end of this time, Jesus begins to share and to teach, and then this is some of what he says in verse 34 of chapter 13. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And this is Jesus's words. Uh, As we get into it, a quick history lesson. for just America only, no one else, no other country, no. But in America, uh, for a hundred years before the change of the millennia, uh, we had this incredible, uh, robust building of what our society was supposed to be like. We went through lots of conflicts and traumas. We tried to restore uh, order to the world, which is a whole thing, went through World War I and World War II. We went through a depression. We went through the Dust Bowl. Uh, We sought uh, to be become a more equitable society. There were all of these things that happened, but really towards the end of the last century, we kind of came to some stable understandings around institutions that made us feel safe, made us feel like we belong, uh, made us feel confident in our society and our communities. Things like banks and financial institutions, things like education and how college works, things like careers and how you can build one, uh, how religion operates within society, how politics is supposed to operate, and that was all going really well. And then in the 2000s, we began this really massive deconstruction of all of those institutions. Uh, With the advent of uh, 
the internet, and all sorts of other technologies, we began to ask all of these questions like, were those institutions actually good? Are they right? Should we still do those things and operate in those ways? And so in the midst of the chaos as well, you think about 9-11 and other wars happening in those first years of the 2000s, you saw people uh, disengage with those institutions and put their trust in them, and then sort of huddled up in friendships and networks of relationships. You can think about the TV show Friends. I know you've all watched it, right? Friends, the TV show? Okay, cool. Where there's six people who, uh, in the midst of their filming of that show, there's tons of chaos happening in our world and our society, and they never talk about any of those things because they're just six people huddled up together and living life and drinking coffee and shopping and doing all of those things. That's really what the, the early 2000s, that's what it was about. Like, their careers didn't even matter. None of that mattered. It was just their friendship to each other. Uh, Then the 2010s were really about the deconstruction of those networks of relationships. We began to feel sort of the tearing down of those institutions coming to our dinner tables, our homes, our neighborhoods. Uh, Maybe families aren't that necessary, we began to wonder. Maybe friendship isn't that essential or necessary. Maybe belonging to one another or in a place isn't necessary. You can go and see just how many Americans switched jobs, switched colleges, moved all across the United States during that period because we felt, well, we don't have to be tethered to anything. Uh, If you want to picture like friends, you can just think about the 2010s as how we shifted from friends being people that you hung out with, like who are your friends? Well, these are the people I spend time with, to that my friends are are content creators that I engage with through my technology. And that's how friendship happened. So that's the deconstruction. Now what's left if we've deconstructed our institutions and our relational systems? The 2020s are going to be, uh, in my estimation, and other sociologists, so there's my you know, backing from smarter people, believe that the 2020s will be about the deconstruction of the self. That the island, after you've torn down everything else, really becomes the lonely place where you've looked into all the ways in which your family and the relational systems have left you down. You look into all the way our institutions have left us, let, us, let us down. And then you're just left with only you. And as you turn in to that horrific pit of your own darkness, you will see that it's not just your families that were broken down or politics or churches itself, but all of the stuff that was present there is actually inside you. And you don't get to examine it as an outsider. You have to examine it as an insider. Now, ultimately, uh, as some of you guys know, living in a house while you demo it is both messy and dangerous. And so community is a really important topic for us because the greatest pandemic that we are facing is not COVID, but loneliness. And I think that's super true. The greatest pandemic we are facing as a body and the people around us is not COVID, but it's loneliness. American essayist, treasure uh, writer Kurt Vonnegut writes this. He says, what should young people do with their lives today? Many things, obviously, 
But the most daring thing is to create stable communities in which the terrible disease of loneliness can be cured. He's saying the greatest thing that we could possibly give ourselves to, uh, the, the, the most daring, you know, treacherous, hard, challenging thing you could give your life to is to create stable communities where loneliness can be cured. How are those formed? That's what this today's passage talks, us about, talks to us about. And, and in this passage, I'm going to share a word that's often super belittled by Hallmark cards, uh, by social media posts, uh, by our everyday conversations about pizza or pop culture or products that we really like. But it's ironically this word we don't really use in regards to other humans very much. And that word, if you can guess it, is love. That communities are built on and exist and thrive because of love. Our need is to receive love. Uh, We're like the parched Central Valley uh, or like those lakes in Northern California that we keep hearing about. Uh, They need uh, nourishment and water, right? Our souls are the same desperate level. We need something that could fill us, and we're told that it's love. A mother, Teresa, who spent her entire life caring for the hungry and the sick that nobody wanted to touch or even be around. She gave her whole life to eradicating those kinds of sickness and and, uh, hunger. She said this. She says, the hunger for love is much more difficult to remove than the hunger for bread. And she knew, right? And so what she is telling all of us is to give your life to creating a community where people love one another is much more difficult than feeding all of the hungry or any other societal ill that we might want to face. To care for one another, to love one another, to have community is harder. That's how great our need is. That's how great our city's need is. Uh, It's so challenging. But I wonder two things, okay? Are we a people or are you someone uh, who knows that you are loved? Are you someone, are we a people that receive readily the love of God? And then the second thing I wonder is, will we, will you pick up that great calling of being a community fashioned and forged by that love? Those are my two big questions. And I do think that the, the answer to those questions really is the answer to the future of our church for the next 10 years. And so we start with the first one, that God loves us. In the middle of this passage, he says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Uh, this is ironically not something I've really resonated with. I've quoted this passage a bunch. This is one of the things I talk about whenever I'm not here. Uh, It's this. And the last two weeks is the first time I realized, like, Jesus tells us that he loves us in this passage. I just went straight to, oh, how do we love one another? And that's really important. But really, he says, as the way I've loved you, that's how you love each other. John 15, uh, he tells us a little bit more about what it's like for us to love each other. Um, Chapter 15, verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, so also I loved you. Now remain in my love. 
If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's command, commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then verse 13, he says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And this, we find out exactly how deep the well of Jesus' love is. He's talking about friendship and all of these things, but then he says in the middle, he says, there's no greater love, there's no way to understand my love than this, than someone who lays down their life for their friend. Uh, that's if you, you know, get on Facebook or whatnot during Veterans Day or Memorial Day, you'll see lots of like tanks and uh, American flags and sort of this thing that says there's no greater love than laying down your life for your friend. And they're trying to say that that's like patriotism. But really, it's Jesus who said, I laid my life down for all of you. There's no greater love you could experience or you could taste than knowing the fact that I've laid my life down to save you because you are my friends. He heals you. He bends down to you. He cherishes you. He comes to you. Unfortunately, I feel like this comment, God loves you, uh, doesn't make its way deep down into our bones. It kind of slides through us. You know, like the wind when we're at the ocean. Uh, maybe every now and then it leaves some salt particles here and there. But it just sort of rushes past us. God loves you. And I've spent really the better part of two weeks trying to figure out how to come up with some way of describing God's love that could get real deep inside of you or even really deep inside of me. And, and I, I have probably failed. So I'm just going to describe it if you'll let me fail forward. In eternity past, there was nothing except for God. And in that moment, God conceived in his majestic imagination, you, your hair, your smile, your brain, your personality, your height, your weight, your lungs, your humor, your intelligence. He conceived of you in God's imagination in eternity past. And in that moment, God said, this is very good. This is my very good idea when he conceived of you. And then God said, I will make a universe, and I will make a solar system, and I will make a world. Then I'll make a, a place for you. And I'm going to bind myself to this entire universe and your flourishing. And from that moment on, it didn't matter what kind of scars were added to you. It didn't matter what kind of wounds sort of got up in you. It didn't matter what kind of health issues came upon you or what kind of messes you've made with other people or the people that you've hurt or the dark thoughts that you thought, it did not matter because God had already decided you will be very good and you will flourish. As darkness rolls over the earth and in the hearts of all of humanity, God cherished it still, and he was not deterred by your darkness or the darkness of the world. Instead, he broke into that world like a thief who breaks into a house in the middle of the night, and he came to rescue and to restore and to redeem all that was lost to darkness, including you. 
And Jesus came for you. Why? Because he had decided in eternity past that he conceived of you then to cherish you for all eternity future. And now, through this never-ending, never-fading, powerful pursuit that God has had for you, God says, you are very good, you are my child. That is the love of God for you. The Hebrew word for love is hesed, or chesed, if you want to be real cool. And it's translated often in our Bibles as loving kindness or enduring faithfulness or things made right. Uh, But Michael Card, who you might have read of if you did the Lament uh, study this past week, he, he describes it this way, and I think it's the best definition ever. He says, God's never-ending love, this hesed, is when the person from which I have the right to expect nothing gives me everything. That is God's love for you. The person from, who, from which you have the right to expect nothing from God, but that God, the creator of the universe, gives you everything. That is God's love. 1 John 3.10 says this. He says, See how great the Father's love is for us, that we should be called children of God, and that we are. This is such clever writing because what he's saying is just to have the label child of God, that's, in, that's extraordinary. Like that's an extraordinary love that, that God would be willing to sort of just dish that out. You know, kind of like when someone says, you're a VIP, you're a champ. Or, uh, you're the boss. That's, that's my favorite. I picked that up a long time ago just to call everyone boss and chief. Uh, even though they're not the boss. They're not the boss of me. Uh, but I still love to do that. And you might think, well, what a nice guy. He's calling people boss. And that's what, what John's saying here. That, that, that God's great love would be that we would just have the label child. But then we actually are. That's who we are, is an extraordinary, over-the-top love. And so what is Christian community? It's a family that knows God loves it. A family with God as its father. Um, And this week you're going to examine in your missional community DNA, personally, just exactly your family of origin and how that hinders and shapes your view of Christian community. But for now... All you need to know is this, is that the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, loves you completely. And that is the source of all other things as it relates to how we operate in community. Which gets to this last, this second question that I asked. Will we be the kind of people that form lasting and stable communities that change the world? That's the original command, to love one another. It's his only command that's not repeated from Moses or a prophet or some other teacher. Everything else Jesus commands us to do is the same, but maybe a little bit more intense. Don't murder becomes, hey, even if you hate someone, you know, that's murder. He sort of expands it. He says, uh, if you want to disregard someone, that's not okay, but in fact, you should cherish them and like go above and beyond. Jesus doesn't uh, really take new license in creating commands, except for this time. He comes up with this brand new one that we love one another, that it's back and forth, that it's giving and receiving. It is the only commandment in the scriptures that requires somebody else to also do their part. 
Like even the teachings on marriage and family, it's like you can be a good dad and the kid will disregard you and hey, you were still faithful. You can be a good spouse and you can do your part and love them. The other person fails, you were still faithful. But this command requires somebody else to do it with you. It can only be obeyed in community. It's like a pass in sports. If you kick a ball to nobody, you just kicked a ball really far away. It requires somebody else there, right? You can't have a jam session in the same way with just one person playing an instrument. Like, that's just one person playing an instrument. To have a jam session, you have to have multiple people playing. You can't just make a show. You actually need to have other people giving and receiving creative work, right? And that's what he's saying. It's a reciprocal command that we love one another. For you to to be faithful in this, it requires you to receive as much as it does to give. But not only that, he also says that this is the sign that you're actually a believer and a follower of Jesus. This is how uh, we all know and the whole world knows that you've received and you've found rest in Jesus' love for you. It's by how you care for and love other disciples. And that's the sign that we're actually Jesus' church. It's not how well we worship. It's not how well we teach. It's not how well we give. Uh, No, like the sign that we belong to Jesus as a church is how we love each other. Like that's the only, that's the barometer of if we are people marked by Jesus. And you'll remember that he says there's no greater love than this, than someone who lays down their life for a friend. And that is for Jesus, and it's also for us, because he says, in the same way I loved you, you have to love one another. So it's not a lesser love, it's the same love. You can even go to that same definition that I read before, about how this sort of hesed, never-ending love is when we give someone or receive something that that, that requires everything from somebody else when we should expect nothing that we give ourselves, we empty ourselves, that requires this extraordinary humility. Uh, You might think, what does that look like? That's what I think. It looks like Lord of the Rings. Uh, This is a big warning. Started reading Lord of the Rings recently, so big warning for all of life. Uh, But there's this point in the book that's not in the movie where Frodo is about to embark on his journey to get rid of the ring, and he's trying to get to Rivendell. And his friends have been co-conspirators without him knowing it. And they know that he's about to leave them, and he's about to go on this really dangerous trek. But he is sort of agonizing about, how can I dump these guys and ditch these guys so I can go do this big thing? And then finally, his friends say, hey, when are you going to tell us that you're going to ditch us? Because we are going with you. And Frodo tells his friends, he says, it's far too dangerous. It's way too dangerous. I cannot let you come with me. That's what Frodo says. You can't come. Where I'm going, he even talks about, it's like, I'm going to die. I'm never going back. Like, you can't come with me. And then his friends reply, saying, it's because it's so dangerous, we can't let you go without us. That is love in community. When one of us is saying, where I'm going in life and what I'm experiencing in life is too heavy a burden, 
too terrible of a cost for you to be swarmed up into it. And then the rest of us say, no, it's precisely because it is messy and broken and hard that we are entering into that life with you. The Bible also points to this different metaphor and image of what it's like to be Christian community, and it's in the picture of this loving marriage. Uh, In a marriage, a husband gives himself up for a wife, lays it all down, encourages her, fights for her, builds her up, serves her, he's patient with her, he thinks of her dreams and says, how can I pursue that? Uh, He calls her to forgiveness and calls her to holiness. He spurs her on to love each other. A husband just has that kind of view of the spouse. And then ironically, uh, the wife uh, does the exact same thing and thinks, how can I encourage him? How can I fight for him? How can I build up his dreams and who he is? How can I serve him? How can I be patient for him? right? Like that's, it's the exact same thing. And that's why marriage is actually talked about regularly in the New Testament, not because it's this institution that everyone has to get in on, but because when we see a marriage, we see Christian community and what we're all called into. And so maybe this is an aside, but if you're a husband, you probably didn't know this, but when you were taking your vows, you were taking a, a role within Christian community to show everybody else how Jesus loves the church. You probably didn't know you were signing that. We should probably weave that into some of the premarital counseling so you know that. And if you're a a wife, you probably didn't know, but you were signing up for the exact same thing, leading the church and how to receive and extend love as well. Even though it's very hard and humbling to receive that kind of love because we want to build ourselves up and have someone else build us up makes it feel feeble and weak. But the New Testament says repeatedly that the church is to operate like a marriage. And I know that elevates the intensity quite a bit. But that we are to do that same thing. If you remember that old parable uh, or that, I think it's Tolstoy, actually, where a woman uh, cuts all of her hair off so that she can buy a watch for this guy, a chain for his watch, and then she, uh, or he sells his watch so he can buy her a brush, and then they get together on Christmas Day, and they can't use their gifts because they, she cut her hair off, and he doesn't have a watch anymore. That's what it's supposed to be like. That is what Christian community is supposed to be like. Whenever it says, uh, don't grow weary and outdoing in good for one another, that's what it's talking about. That's the picture, to receive and extend that kind of love. And so we as a church aspire to be a church of communities of disciples that actually love one another that gives sacrificially and receives sacrificially. Uh, Organization, communication, logistics, you know, friendliness, social skills, hosting skills, these are all very important for us being a church. But without love, there is no community. That's just a well-run series of events. And without love, Uh, we don't get to form and shape communities and know it. We need to grow first in receiving God's love and then extending it to each other. And the reality is, is that for half of us, that's just my guess, 
maybe it's different, but half of us, the weightiest challenge of all of this is to receive love from someone in this room. Like to receive that kind of sacrifice, that is more terrifying than giving everything else, giving stuff up for other people. We would rather give love than receive love. And then for the other half of us, it's a really weighty challenge to imagine being that selfless, that uh, merciful, and extending love to other people. And just as I finish, I want to say both of those images or those perspectives are the same root, and it's pride. Both are conquered, though, and set free by a God who loves. That's why we're going to go now and experience communion, not because it's a ritual that we do every week, but in going and taking communion, we realize that love had to be extended to us. So to receive love from one of us is nothing compared to the receiving of the love from God. And if you can't receive love from one of us, how much more difficult is it for you to receive the love of God? But also, if it's difficult for you to extend and hand out and pass out that love, how much harder is it for you to then extend uh, the love of God and to see the love of God operate in other people? And so now we're going to come and take communion. And it's a moment where we declare that we need God's love. And we declare, I am a saint who gets to extend that love. And so I'll pray for us, and then we'll go and take. Jesus, thank you for this reality of your love for us. I pray that it does get deep uh, into our bones, uh, even into our stomachs as we take communion. Help us to be humble uh, in receiving and extending uh, your magnificent love. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You can go and take...